U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Project. I am Dale, and joining me is my XO, Steven. Hey, Steven. Hey there, everyone. How's it going? They've told me it's going good. They just had Christmas. Oh. And New Year's. What a delightful time of year. Bay's frozen over, which means we can't pull out of port. Yeah, we can. Just bring in the icebreaker. Always ruining my shore leave, Captain. Always ruining my shore leave. That's my job. I'm the captain. You know, it's probably for the best. I, I did rack up a lot of debts at the casino. Yeah, they've contacted me. We're taking it right out of your pay. That isn't the right answer. That isn't the answer I was hoping for at all. <laughs> so we are on the Eastern Campaign. We're in the North Carolina area. And we are doing more battles. All right. You ready to get underway? Let's cast off. So the next one is the Battle of New Bern. Where's that? North Carolina. You know, I walked right into that one. Yeah. So the soldiers of the Coast Division, they got on to transports at Roanoke Island on March 11th of 1862. And they got underway the next morning. They had 14 Navy gunboats with them. And one gunboat that they had of their own. One of the Navy vessels was told to guard the mouth of the Pamlico River. Because there was a rumor that the rebels were preparing two ships to cut off the transports. That could be separated from Navy protection. This was not happening. It was false. Hmm, okay. So the main force, they go to Pamlico Sound, and they enter the Neus River and anchors near the mouth of Solcom's Creek just before nightfall. Now, the enemy was aware of their presence, and they immediately take up defensive positions. The guy in charge name was Branch, and he sends his colonel, Mr. James Sinclair, of the 35th North Carolina Infantry to the landing at Otters Creek. He had instructions to oppose the enemy landings there. A Colonel Zebulon of Vance's 26th North Carolina was ordered to the Croatian work, to defend that area. All right. He also sent uh, other units to go upstream to guard the river. He had his reserves assembled at the intersection of the railroad and the Beaufort Road. And all of them were instructed that if they are forced from their positions, they should fall back onto the Fort Thompson line. So at dawn on the 13th, the Union Army began to disembark their boats. And, of course, the uh, small unit left behind by the rebels to contest the landing was quickly routed because they got fired on by the gunboats. Oh, no, we're being shot at, and it's wartime. Run! Not just shot at, but shot at by cannon. Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't stick around either. Yeah, me neither. 
So Burnside, he spends the morning getting his men and equipment ashore. He brought his infantry, and he took six boat howitzers from the Navy and two of his own army howitzers with them. Now, he looked at the weather and he was like, you know what? I need to land this artillery closer to the enemy. And as he did this, a huge, dense fog comes in. And now he can't communicate with his fleet. So the fleet was like, we're keeping the guns. <laughs> so about noon, the Union soldiers start going towards Confederate lines. And that's when the rain starts. So the road they were using is now mud. So now these guys are getting tired out just by the mud. And of course, you know, the gunners, they've got their howitzers with them. And they they just got so tired they couldn't do it anymore. So the 51st Pennsylvanian Infantry Regiment mm -hmm. were told to help them. A lot of these guys, they said that this was the hardest part of the battle. It wasn't the fighting. It was just moving those stupid artillery pieces. Well, I mean, artillery isn't exactly light to begin with. You throw in poor weather conditions, which probably makes it muddy. It isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Nope. But, you know, while they are making their very slow progress, the gunboats, they stay with them. And they shell places where they think that the rebel army might be. Now, a guy named Colonel R.P. Campbell, he is in command of the Confederate right wing. And he hears this naval gunfire and says, oh crap, they're making another landing right behind us. Oof. So he orders his men to pull back to the Fort Thomas line. He's just like, they've already outflanked us, we're gone. So because of that, when the Union comes up to the first line of defense for the Confederacy, their breastworks, they didn't see nobody. They found their breastworks abandoned. Hmm. So they look at each other. What? Well, let's keep going. <laughs> so they split up there, and one group goes on a country road, and the second goes and follows a railroad. Then the third group gets there. They're like, you know what? Let's take the road. We might get hit by a train over there. So they follow the road, too. And they keep going until they finally come in contact with the enemy. They come in contact with them about a mile and a half away from the Fort Thomas line. And at this time, daytime's over. Darkness falls. So Burnside, he's like, you know what? Let's just stop here. And, you know, we'll go ahead and bunker down for the night. A sensible thing if it's not great weather conditions and now it's dark. Right. And then the howitzers finally arrive at 0300. Big boom time. Sleepy time. <laughs> okay, fine. Sleepy time, then big boom time. Yes. So the next morning, there is a very dense fog again. But Burnside, he's like, doesn't matter. Form up and advance. Now, of course, 
he does not have a full picture of what the Confederate lines were like. He thought that they only extended from the river to the brickyard. So he orders the 1st Brigade to engage the enemy left, and the 2nd Brigade would hit them on the right. And he deployed the 8 Howitzers across the road, and he held the 3rd Brigade in reserve. And the army was also a little weirded out from the gunboats, because they were still shelling. Oof. Yeah, and they were shelling rebel positions, but the positions were being hidden by forests, so they were like, what's going on? Are they firing at us? This is weird. You know what? Let's just change direction. And fall back? Not exactly. Just, you know, away from where the gunfire was hitting. <laughs> now, on the rebel side, or the Confederate side, General Branch, he had formed his regiments into a line from Fort Thompson to the Brickyard. He had four regiments and a fifth one in reserve. And he also had artillery on the right flank. He had some cavalry as well, so that's, you know, going to frighten some people. Sounds like he had a pretty well-rounded force. Yeah. Now, his weakest unit was a militia battalion, and they had about two weeks of training. They had shotguns and hunting rifles. So, you know, we know what happens when militia gets involved. Uh, a good time for the non-militia unit. Usually they route immediately. Mm -hmm. We'll find out if that happens. I mean, he did try to give them additional support. He ordered two gun batteries to get up there with them. Unfortunately, they did not get them mounted in time. Oh. So, General Reno orders a portion of the 21st Massachusetts to charge with the support of the 9th New Jersey, 51st New York. He held the 51st Pennsylvania... In reserve. Now, this charge was successful at first, but once they found themselves under fire, they were like, hmm, let's pull back. So, Burnside, he orders his reserve, the 3rd Brigade, into Reno's 2nd Brigade to support them. And the 4th Rhode Island and the 21st Massachusetts. At this time, we're out of ammo. Well, that never goes well. No. Even back in this age, when it was still a relatively low rate of fire. So they retreat, and Colonel Isaac Rodman of the 4th Island was told by a Lieutenant Commander Clark of the 21st Massachusetts that, you know what, I know that charge just failed, but I bet you we can do it better. <laughs> Can't wait to see how this one goes. Yeah, so Rodman sends a courier to the general saying, this is what's going to happen. Then he forms his regiment and orders them to charge. Now, he did have a little bit better information on the disposition of the enemy because, you know, people were firing at each other now. So this charge was successful and they captured nine brass field pieces and found themselves behind 
the Confederacy now. Always a good spot to be. Yeah, so this is when the Confederate line breaks. And, of course, the retreat starts when the militiamen flee and expose the units on both of their flanks. I told you, the militia, they were going to drop first and go. <laughs> yeah, things look bad, they run. Now, Branch does order his reserves to plug the line, but they did not get there in time. So as both of the left and right flanks started breaking, everybody started retreating. So the general, he looks around and goes, you're already doing it, so retreat. And of course, the retreat quickly becomes a rout. Because now they got their own field pieces firing at them. So the Confederates, they run across the bridge over the Trent River and into New Bern. And they torch the bridge. Oh, no. Yeah, but they did it too soon. Not all of them made it across the bridge before it was torched. We have POWs now. Yep. They also decided that they were going to set a river raft on fire and set it adrift. And it drifted up against the railroad bridge and burned that down as well. Well, well say it with me, folks. We love pyromaniacs in wartime. Yeah. Now, Commander Rowan, he had moved his boats up the river to assist the army. And they get, you know, just minor damage when passing the low barrier. And then they position themselves to shell the fort. Now, when the fort is abandoned, they immediately pass the second barrier and move on to New Bern. Now, during the retreat, the Confederacy also abandoned all of their river batteries and spiked their guns. Which, you know, that means that the fleet can take them, repair them, and put them back in action. Mm-hmm. Now, at New Bern itself, the fleet kept, you know, sailing up there, chasing them, and started shelling them as they were retreating. And this allowed the Confederacy to, or this caused the Confederacy not to be able to regroup. So, no regrouping. There's no way to form up and uh, turn around and, you know, attack again. Do a counterattack. That's the word. Yeah, they actually couldn't reform until they went back to Kingston. So, after they finally get out of range of the, uh, the fleet, the boats go back down and start ferrying all the Union soldiers across the river because, you know, the bridges are burnt now. Yeah, you have to swim, which, as we keep on establishing in this show, was surprisingly uncommon knowledge back in this time. Or you find your friendly ferryman. Yep. So, the Confederacy had 64 killed, 101 wounded, and 413 captured or missing. The Union had 90 killed, 380 wounded, and only one man was captured. The Union suffered considerably taking that location. It was a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. So they 
the Union, so the Union occupies New Bern, and it actually is occupied by the Union for the rest of the war. So that is the Battle of New Bern. Not bad. Not amazing. I mean, mission accomplished, but at a higher cost than they'd like. Yeah. So next we have the Siege of Fort Macomb. So, just after the Union takes Hatter's Island on the Outer Banks, Brigadier General Burnside, he develops a plan to extend the federal control of the eastern North Carolina with a joint Army-Navy expedition. This plan is approved by the General-in-Chief, McKellen, and also the War Department. And so he's given authority to recruit and organize a division. This is going to be the Coast Division. And, you know, their partners are going to be the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron. And their goal is to take control of the North Carolina Sounds and the adjacent cities. So, by this time, they've already taken Roanoke Island, Elizabeth City, and New Bern. You know, we just went over all of those. Mm-hmm. So, that leaves a garrison at Fort McCone. Burnside would not be able to use the ports at Beaufort and Moorhead City while the fort remains in Confederate possession. So, immediately after capturing New Bern, he orders his Brigadier General, Park, to reduce the fort. What do you think he meant by reduce the fort? Um, reduce it from a fort to the foundation. Yes. So Park begins seizing the towns along the inner shore. Carolina City, Moorhead City, Newport, and then Beaufort. So this, you know, severs the communication between the garrison and the Confederate forces. And, of course, Park also repairs the railroad bridge that, you know, those guys burned while they were running away. <laughs> they may burn it down, but we'll build it again. Bigger, better, stronger, more fireproof. Well, I mean, they did need it so they could transport their artillery. And this isn't just any artillery. This is siege artillery. The biggest bada-boom. Big bada-boom. So, on March 23rd, General Park sends a message to Colonel White, who is in charge of the garrison. And he says, surrender. Yeah, short, sweet, to the point. He offers to release the men on parole if the fort is given to him intact. He gets a reply. Quote, I have the honor to decline evacuating Fort McCone. So, the siege starts. The fort is surrounded by the the Union siege artillery, gets put in place, and Park sets up four batteries that would hit the fort with four 8-inch mortars at a 1,200-yard range, four 10-inch mortars at a 1,600-yard range, three 30-pounder rifled, with a range of 1,300 yards, and a 12-pounder, which was a boat howitzer, which had a range of 1,200 yards. Wow. Yeah. 
they moved these batteries in under the cover of darkness. And they were hidden behind sand dunes until they were going to be put into use. Now, the guys that were defending the fort, they knew something was happening. But it's dark. They can't see nothing. Mm -hmm. So they didn't fire on them because why waste ammunition if you can't see the target? They did send out patrols to harass the Union soldiers, but of course they were driven back pretty quickly. But, I mean, they pretty much lost nobody during... Now, General Burnside sends a report to the War Department, and he says, quote, I hope to reduce the fort within 10 days. Unquote. That's an ambitious amount of time to reduce a fort to its foundation. Yeah, let's see if he can do it. Huh? So, they get everything in place by April 23rd. This is a month after that first message. And so General Burnside, he sends another message to Colonel White, you know, to be nice mm -hmm. and repeats mm -hmm. his demand for surrender. And he again offers to release everybody on parole. But, you know, Colonel White, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm staying right here and you can't make me. <laughs> It's cute that you think that. Amber Size is like, hold my beer. And on the 24th, he orders General Park to begin his bombardment. So Park, he decides, you know what? I'm going to wait until nightfall because they don't know about those guns yet. And I'm going to bring them out under cover of darkness and say, surprise! <laughs> And he begins his bombardment at dawn the next day. At first, the gunners in the fort, they manned their, their posts and they replied with gunfire of their own. But they were not able to really inflict any damage on the Union guns because of the protection they had of the from the dunes. And then all of a sudden, the Navy arrived. The USS Daylight the USS State of Georgia, the USS Chippewa, and the USS Gemsbach. This is when the Navy says, you know what? I want some of that siege action. Why let the Army have all the fun? Yeah, they they hear gunfire and they're like, you know what, that sounds like fun. We gotta get a piece of that. <laughs> now, the weather was not very good for a naval bombardment, unfortunately, because, you know, Strong winds made the vessels rock quite badly. So they tried for about an hour and were like, we got to wait. Now, the Navy tried to bring in a couple of floating batteries to see if the maybe that'll help. But no, the waves were too big for that, too. Matter of fact, there's they don't even know if they even hit the stupid fort. Now, the Confederacy, on the other hand, they were not affected by waves. They got two hits on the Navy vessels. They didn't do very much damage, though, and they slightly wounded one person. So, good job. You did nothing. Yeah. But, you know, they tried. <laughs> Here, have a gold star for effort. We may be a Navy podcast, but we're not going to be all... They are the only ones that did the best. We will tell the truth. 
they screwed up. <laughs> now, on the Army side, the initial fire from the mortars were inaccurate. But a Lieutenant Andrews was like, I can do this better. And starts delivering messages to the battery commanders and telling them how to adjust their range. Which means that at about noon, just about every single shot was on target. 19 guns in the fort were dismounted. The walls of the fort began to crumble under the continuous pounding. And about mid-afternoon, Colonel White begins to fear that the magazine would take a hit and blow. So at 16.30, he made the decision that they were done and orders a white flag to be raised. Once that white flag goes up, gunfire stops. Colonel White meets with General Park and they discuss terms. At first, Park was like, unconditional surrender. But then? White was like, that's not going to work for me. Can you give me better conditions? You know what the conditions were before? You know, General Burnside said, parole for his men? Yeah, yeah. Park was like, that was before you forced us to do this. Yeah, th those nice terms only apply at first. Yeah. So he tells White, you go back in your fort. I will not start firing again until I talk with the general, though. So Park goes and talks to Burnside. Burnside looks at the situation and says, you know, White probably could hold out for at least another day. And, you know, if we start firing again, there's only going to be more casualties and more damage to the fort. So you know what? Give him the terms. Will be nice. Yeah. So the men in the fort were given paroles. That means that they would not take up arms against the United States until, you know, properly exchanged in a prisoner swap. And they're permitted to go home. That's nice. So they're, you know, prisoners of war without actually having to stay in a prisoner of war camp. So on uh, the morning of April 26th, the Confederate flag is lowered and the defenders march out and the Union soldiers march in. So you would think that this would be you no know, very costly battle. But, you know, not really. On the Union side, they lost a man and two soldiers and a seaman are wounded. And on the Confederate side, seven are killed. That's not bad at all. Two d more did die later of their wounds, and 16 were wounded. Hmm. So the losses were really not huge, especially with everything they just went through. I mean, 19 guns pounding them all day. Yeah, that could have been much, much worse. Yeah. So that is the siege of Fort Macon. So we're going to hit up the Battle of Abel Morel Sound really quick. And that will be it for this episode. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. 
All right. So this is just a naval battle. This was between eight gunboats on the Union side, one ironclad, and two gunboats on the Confederate side. So James W. was the commander of the Abel Morale and sailed out of Plymouth in May of 1864, steaming towards New Bern. Cook ran into a Union fleet at the mouth of the Abel Marl Sound. And this fleet was commanded by Captain Malin. What the f- kind of name is that? <laughs> oh, please tell me that's going to stay in. Bleeped, but bleeped, but. This fleet is commanded by Captain Smith. <laughs> First name John? No. It is a name I refuse to pronounce. (laughs) You jerk. (laughs) Now, Smith, he has a advantage in numbers. But, you know, he really couldn't do very much damage to the single Confederate ship. Because it's an ironclad... Everything just bounces off. Yeah, it just glanced off the sides. So the USS Sessa Cruz rams her at top speed. Top speed in this case still being very slow, but still devastating. It it caused significant damage. Bumper boats for keepsies. Yeah, the Abel Morel begins taking on water. But, you know, the Sassacus also took damage from the impact. And one of her boilers burst, scalding the crew. Now, the rest of the fleet, meanwhile, managed to recapture a converted steamer called the CSS Bombshell. Now, the Sassacus... You know, I've said that name three different ways, three different times, but <laughs> it is what it is. The, the thingy. Yeah. She is now too damaged to be able to steam on her own. And she drifts down the river. Unfortunately, though, the Abel Morel, who was also damaged, she continued to fight and went back to Plymouth. Now, while the battle itself is pretty much a standoff, the events that followed it were more decisive. Now, the Abel Morel had held her own against greater numbers, but the damages that she did suffer had forced her into port for the next several months, preventing it to be used in the planned assault on New Bern. And General Hulk woes ahead with his campaign even without the boat, and he achieves nothing and is recalled to Virginia. Now, in October... There was an even greater impact of not having that boat. William B. Cushing leads a naval raid and detonates a torpedo beneath the hull. Oh. And because of this, Plymouth, Washington, North Carolina, they all fall back into Union. So I think next week, why don't we just cover the CSS Abel Marl? Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We could do that, and we'll get into the rest of the battles of the 
North Carolina coast, and then we'll start on the valley, probably the episode after that. All right. All right. So, so we're going to honor another veteran with our partnership with Hero Cards. So today we're going to honor Fireman Third Class John Lammers. So he is from Utsburg, Wisconsin. So in 1914, war erupted in Europe, and the United States, of course, remains neutral at the beginning of World War I, just like in World War II. And in April of 1917 is when America officially enters the conflict by declaring war on Germany. President Woodrow Wilson then signs the Selective Service Act, May 18, 1917, requiring all men between the ages of 21 and 30 to register for military service. So as a young man, John Lammers worked for the Denmark Consolidated Milk Company at its condensary located in his hometown of Utsburg, Wisconsin. It's a small village of Dutch immigrants surrounded by dairy farms. In the early 1900s, prior to mechanical refrigeration, milk that was not quickly consumed or used to manufacture butter and cheese had to be condensed, meaning removing most of the water to make it transportable as powdered evaporated milk. At age 21, John Lammers registered for the draft in June of 1918 and enrolled in the Navy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin a month later. He was required to report to the Great Lakes Naval Training Station in Illinois. Now, it was just a 125-mile train ride south across the state border. The farms of his hometown and the large naval facility near Chicago, those two worlds were quite different. So, Lammers trains as a fireman third class. A fireman from that era was not what we now think of as a firefighter. Hmm. Ships in the early 1900s were primarily powered by steam from coal-fired boilers. So the job of a fireman was hot, dirty, physical, and confined as he stoked and tended the ship's boilers. Okay, so fireman is more akin to, I don't want to say engineer, but someone who maintains the, the engine. No. No? Just, just the coal. Oh. Just like on a train. You know, the... So, someone who someone who's just shoveling coal into the furnace. Yep. Making sure the engine's fed. Yep. No, the guy actually running the boiler would be the boiler technician. Hmm. BTs. Boiler technicians. Okay. So, World War I was one of the costliest in history, claiming an estimated 16 million lives. There was also something that was more deadly... That swept the world in 1918, nicknamed the Spanish Influenza. It took an estimated 20 to 50 million lives, about a fifth of the world's population at that time. And of course, during this time, there's no effective drugs or vaccines to treat the flu strain. Yeah, it was the first modern pandemic. Yeah. A nurse at the Navy hospital in the Great Lakes training facility named Josie Brown described being overwhelmed with influenza patients. Quote, we didn't have the time to treat them. We didn't take temperatures. We didn't even have time to take blood pressure. We would give them a little hot whiskey toddy. That's about all 
we had time to do. So in September of 1918, just two months after John Lammers arrives at the Great Lakes Naval Training Station, that's when the Spanish influenza arrives there as well. He fell ill from the disease, and his parents were notified by telegram that he had died in the Navy hospital on September 25th, 1918. So John Lammers is remembered in his hometown with Utzberg's Hartman Lammers American Legion Post 286 named in his honor. If you want to know more about Hero Cards, you can go to herocards.us. You can also get involved with the Grateful Nation Project at herocards.us forward slash schools. So, XO, you can take it away from here if you want. <laughs> well, folks, we keep asking, and it looks like uh, another person has decided to weigh in. Not exactly, you know, a review, so to speak, but someone reached out and had something to say about our Ironclad episode. It counts. It counts. From user WJK11, they felt that it was really fascinating and they learned so much regarding our Ironclad special that originally we thought was going to be one episode and ended up four, I believe. Three. Three. It was a long one. It was fun, though. It, so much. So we really appreciate you saying that, WJK. We learned a lot, too. If you folks want to join, join the ranks of WJK11, feel free to leave a comment, you know, give us your thoughts, tell us what you think of the show. You can also reach out to us with email at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You're giving me a look, Captain. I was thinking my... I'm a little tired, okay? Leave me alone. I know, I know. I need to hate my rack. I, I know. I, I keep you up all hours of the night with my shenanigans. That's why sometimes I just lock the brig up and just leave. <laughs> you can also reach out to us with Twitter, at USN History Pod. If you want to participate in the conversation more directly, we have a Discord server now. You can find the link to that in the show notes. And with that, we wish you fair winds and following seas. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. <laughs>